Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Welcome back to the Diverse Tech Founders podcast. We have a special episode today where we might get a little political, but that's okay because we're looking to grow and learn more in this new age, and we couldn't ask for a better guest today with Jordan Wilson of the Politic and App. But before we get started, we have a special treat for you. And if you've listened to some of our prior episodes, you might be familiar with this brand. So we're just going to get this started a little bit with the slow. There we go. That's the second one. So that is us cracking open freshly. We have both of their first flavors, uh, Bay Lemonade and Get em. Jordan, before we get started, how does that Bay Lemonade taste? Man, okay, so this is tasting amazing. I've got definitely this bourbon flavor, but to be honest with you, it just seems like something that's perfect for today. Refreshing, but very flavorful. So shout out to Freshly. Good. So that's something that we've been giving away to guests as well. So definitely pick it up at Freshly.co. Uh, but let's rewind the clock back to before you were of drinking age, Jordan, <laughs> and talk about uh, you when you were younger and tell us about childhood Jordan and if childhood Jordan would be friends with Jordan today. Man, childhood Jordan would drive this Jordan crazy, but they're very much alike. They are both extremely energetic. They're very positive as much as possible because sometimes life gets tough. And if it's not life, it's people. But I've always been somebody who cared about helping others, always wanted to be an attorney. I didn't know where I wanted to get a law degree. I didn't always know even why I wanted to practice, but I always knew that I wanted to be in control of making somebody's situation better. There are a couple of ways you can do that today. Um, you can run for office, which is the encouraged way. And anybody who's listening to this, and of course, you'll hear me get into more of the politicking spill. I would encourage if you have the feeling to do that, to do it. But I haven't had that direct urge yet. I can't count it out. But what I will say is that being an attorney, as you know, Abraham, puts you in a unique position, number one, to sort of, and sometimes blindly, uh, get the trust of someone like strangers, right? But you've got that trust and it allows you to join a team, folks who are just committed to winning and not winning always for the sake of just profit, but wanting to improve whatever problem someone who came to you with uh, is sort of facing. And so the younger Jordan, to answer your question, is all of those things, but someone who stayed committed to that goal. And that's why I started politicking also. I think that voting beyond you know, what I do as now new attorney on a team of lawyers is probably more important because there's more of an immediate consequence. I could go my whole life without practicing law and not necessarily feel the pressure of helping in the way that I mentioned law allows you to, but I would never be able to live a day without seeing an election go by. If it's the judicial one that's coming up in Nashville, if it's a presidential one, like the one that will be happening in two years, or if, you know, it's some of the legislative races that are even happening in Tennessee without feeling that I've got to at least do something. I got to find something I got to stay at home. Like, you know, you, you can never learn about an election and not make a decision. And so my angle as a tech entrepreneur has been marrying technology with information and now licensing, especially since I've moved closer into being a practicing attorney. 
with getting folks out to act. Um, we can talk about this, but I've been recently thinking a lot about why people don't vote more than thinking about just the standard GOTB stuff. What have you learned? Well, number one, people just don't feel like that is kind of like a day-to-day. There's no day-to-day urgency with voting. Like there's day-to-day urgency with like calling the water department or calling the light department. If you have some challenges paying that bill and making sure like, can you just chill out on cutting off my bill? You know, there's some day-to-day challenges. If you're professional with finding better corporate structure that works or professional structure that works for your team or even yourself. But I don't think people can identify a lot of the day-to-day urgency when it comes to voting that really compels them to feel that the superficial nature or the somewhat disappointing nature of politics is something that would not deter them from showing up every year. And then a second reason I think is that I don't think people know what the hell people are talking about. Like as much as I've moved closer into corporate law, there's still some things I don't care about. Like, I mean, I only know so many things about NFTs. I only know so many things about different bond structures that are important as a voter actually to know about. But if no one who's running is actually speaking that language, I'll forget about it. More reasons than I, and I like reading. Like, you know, I love studying, but that's the type of sort of litmus test that voting has become that just completely turns people off. And I think the third thing is that you can only get your heart broken so many times. I don't think we'll ever get to elect another Obama. Obviously, that doesn't mean we'll never get to elect another Black person for president. It doesn't mean that we won't. I, I think that we've, as voters, had our heart broken so many times that we are probably trying to avoid that as much as possible. I know I am, you know, and and so founding politicking is sort of my form of resistance, but I know that's not the case for every voter. And so those are the things that I believe really frustrate voters, turn them off, and just completely in many ways lose their interest. But those are some challenges. I think elected officials, people who fund elected officials, anybody who's a part of the ecosystem who calls themselves in the business of getting voters out. Um, those are some things If they're not taking them serious. And then I don't think they're doing their job. So That's good. So let's stay on childhood, Jordan, because we got a really good sense. of. Sorry. Where, yeah, where I went all the way. See, I'm so inspired by that sign, too. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> it's all good. So let's go back to when you were much younger, because mm-hmm. it's my understanding that, you know, politics is sort of in your blood mm-hmm. and that you started off early on. You yeah. Know, with pins and flyers and buttons and knocking on doors Man. and handing out stuff. So talk to us about that experience for you. And if that is necessary for you to get interested in politics as an adult. No, it's not. Fortunately, I I probably have a lot less sobering of introduction to politics than some people do, at least some people that I've encountered. But the younger Jordan was with her mom, who's a former mayor of my hometown, Gary, Indiana, going to the projects, knocking on people's doors. And Indiana, there's this misconception that formerly incarcerated people cannot vote, which is not the case. Presently incarcerated people cannot vote. But formerly is, you know, I I don't have to explain that distinction to you. But with that, there were so many people who missed out on the opportunity just to participate. So we went to the projects, not to say that that's just a place full of formerly incarcerated folks, but that's just where we thought was a good location um, to go to. 
and just tell folks, are you registered? Do you have a record? You can still vote. And even, hang on, hang on. what okay. did people say? If you can remember, they didn't believe they thought it was a lie. Actually, I remember this so vividly. This guy was like, cause, cause my mom, before she was married, she was like always a known person, at least as long as I was growing up. And she was a criminal defense attorney. So some of these people actually like, I don't know if this is a good or bad thing, but like she had represented some of these people. And so they thought she was lying. You know, they were like, they were like, no, you're lying. You're not, you're lying. She was a judge. So say, oh, you're lying, judge. And she was like, no, you can really like sign up to vote. It was sad. You know, I'm laughing about that, but that's extremely unfortunate to feel like that. But anyway, so, so that's. So, so when they realized that they were enfranchised, what was that like for them? Could you just talk about, because you mentioned the apathy today. Yeah. And that's a pretty good juxtaposition to you back then where people who were very interested in, in using their right to vote. So talk a little bit about what the experience was like for them when they realized they could do it. It was empowering. It was then like you give people a third leg, right? You have the two that you walk on, but that additional one may get you somewhere you had never even thought about going or allow you to do something you'd never even really envisioned for yourself. And that's the way letting somebody know they can actually vote or that they're eligible to vote. That That's the type of feeling that brings to a person. And so it was, to be honest, like, as I'm talking about it, I kind of have a sad feeling because I'm just thinking about that there's so many more people who don't recognize that they're enfranchised or disenfranchised and um, don't have anyone that would be interested in helping them with that. But at that time, I think as a young person, it taught me, let's think a little bit more about the people who don't have access and definitely not to discount the people who do. But let's just try to think about those people who might not have anybody providing that information. Okay. Let's just focus on them real quick. Okay. So let's I turn into 20 some years. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So you spoke about the sadness maybe that comes from that experience, but it also seems like it transitioned into inspiration for you with politicking. So now let's just get into what is politicking and when did you know this was the way you were going to make your impact in the political arena if not in other ways in the future. Politicking is a political information and content licensing company that directly seeks to enfranchise and engage younger black and brown people. Okay, okay. That was a good response. Yeah. What is the what is the non-lawyer oh, response? Oh, that wasn't a lawyer. That wasn't even a lawyer. <laughs> Politicking is just the people's platform. Really it is. I mean, nothing else speaks to young black people in Nashville or Gary or anywhere, like the way politicking does about where to vote, where to show up. How do you get there? How do you get there? How do you get to the polls? Like there are these random locations, even in my neighborhood in Gary, because I'm still an Indiana voter. It's like this crumbling church, you know what I mean? So how would I, I've never been there. And then who are the candidates that you're voting for other than Joe Biden and whoever the Republican party chooses to nominate at their convention in 24? Those are the things that we teach people. I never really said this, but this is the truth. At the time that I founded Politicking, I was working at the Institute of Politics at Harvard. I'm so distant from the job now that, you know, I don't mind saying this, but like I, <laughs> I are distanced from asking to get rehired, but <laughs> at least as that, <laughs> maybe they need a drink. But at the time I met so many people. I met like Brittany Packnett, who's really cool. I met Stacey Abrams. I just met some incredible people. Then I met some people. I was like, what the hell are these people talking about? They're steering people 
basically out into a plank to drown to death because this is like lies about the way our electoral process works. And so all of that kind of frustration around election misinformation boiled up into the 2016 presidential election, which happened my third month into the job. And a lot of people were crying. A lot of people were frustrated. And a lot of those people were folks who were saying crazy stuff throughout the whole semester to students and to like people who were participating in those focus groups or study groups. And so I just realized there was such an ecosystem directed around like misinformation, sound bites, just basically like getting clout around saying whatever you want about politics that made me feel since these people are out here for a more enfranchised group, I should say like white voters, at least we can have our sort of guardians of the black electoral vote and create an electronic platform for them that would at least protect black and brown people from all that noise. So that is a convoluted way of saying my goal is to more than anything, help our people focus during the process. I I really don't have like any directed preference as the co-founder of politicking uh, for who you vote for as much as I just want you to have some type of thought, some type of vote, you know, whoever it is, that just is what it is. But my, my goal is that you would feel so inspired about the way the process is being tainted um, that you would want to show up for somebody, right? So talk about that. I mean, if I'm a political junkie, I'm all over politicking. Right. You know, I'm going to eat up all of the information that you're providing. I'm going to know where my poll is. I'm going to know who I'm voting for and why. But if I'm a casual voter or even an apathetic voter and all I've done is maybe donate, if that, what is politicking? going to give to these casual consumers? I want to respectfully challenge you because actually I know everything. I grew up in politics. I know a lot about politics. I didn't know where the hell, like literally on the day of my election, I was looking on the app, asking people, where do I go? Because my polling location changed. On your own app? On my own app. My polling location at home changed because the neighborhood has just lost a lot. I mean, as the years go on, um, and now also, as you know, the census count changes that. So I didn't even know where to go. It wasn't the same place. Like I said, it was this random church that I had never been to. But for the apathetic voter, politicking will allow you to learn about who certain elected officials are, what positions they've adopted, who they might be affiliated with or what they might be affiliated with. I know that for even, and just using this as an example, the Republican Party, a lot of people try to say like, where were you on January 6th? Or I guess people do this with a lot of white candidates. You know, they want to know, like, were you one of those people who challenged the 2020 presidential election? But Pasek will tell you that maybe, right? If you're a congressperson, if you sat on the insurrection committee or are currently sitting on it and just, who are you? Like, being a politician or, you know, defining a politician is beyond, I think, who the person presents themselves to be on a commercial. That's to raise money. And so... You know, we familiarize voters with these people. We inform them on how to participate in their elections. And then we also tell them how to connect with them outside of just whatever election day is. We've hosted, especially during the pandemic, a lot of conversations, IG lives, interviews. We've done a lot of content collaboratively with Baller Alert, the Grio, Dame Dash Studios, a bunch of people who aren't traditionally in the political sector, so to speak, but who I believe if we can put one positive thing or like, you know, non like Hollywood thing on their platforms and we're doing something good. 
And so for the apathetic voter who, who might be on any of those platforms aside from politics, I think politicking marries our culture and day-to-day interests with whatever is happening with the ballot. Okay, that's good. And that's definitely your perspective, which is super highly valuable. But let's talk traction now, which is evidence from the market that other people are seeing what you're seeing. So uh, you mentioned some of the partnerships that you have, but talk to us a little bit about the evidence of traction that you saw early on that made you know that you wanted to keep going with this, regardless of the ups and downs as an entrepreneur, and just a little bit more about maybe how people are using it and the reaction people have to politicking. Well, the biggest sort of point of evidence I should bring up is that we've got a cumulative platform of users on the actual app, newsletter subscribers, followers on Instagram, Twitter, and through another lift serve that we have of elected officials of 10,000 people. So that's like the biggest thing to me. Like as much as I hate math, obviously I went to law school. I am that, I mean, numbers don't lie. And then the second thing is that this is something that I've got a network. I grew up with a network full of elected officials and a lot of our conversation has gone from, you know, what's going on with you to how can I get on politicking? How can I connect? You know, how can I connect you to the U.S. Congress of Mayors or any other nonpartisan group, which is what's most fit for us? And so I would say that's the biggest thing. The people focus thing is in. Um, I'll use this as a case study that I'm a voter in Indiana's first congressional district. And we had a election two years ago. And there was, from what I'm told by local pollsters, significant participation amongst a younger Black group when we hosted a forum that was specifically about Black issues. Nothing else. Not environmental, not, you know, non-racial, I guess, or whatever. Pause. I I want us to stay here for a little bit, because what do you mean by Black issues? Could you just put us in the room at that forum? Yeah, like, what's going on with, um, there was a guy guy in my hometown who was murdered by the Gary police. And so that was something we wanted to focus on. You know, what should black men, young black men expect, young black men and women expect from encountering police officers? What should we expect from relocating to the city, from Boston, from DC, from LA, wherever, and having some job prospects if you don't have a college degree? What should we expect to want to own storefront businesses? Those are the things that, and when I say we, I mean young black people, that I wanted politics to focus on. And then we obviously opened up the realm of issues that were pertinent to us, but probably also relevant to others, like the issue of environmental racism is a big thing, because even though it's something that impacts us disproportionately, not all of our neighbors are Black. And then also the economic piece is, is big. And so that's something that we focused on that I believe had a considerable result on the amount of us who showed up for a congressional race. Nobody in Indiana, especially a lot of folks in our demographic, are focused on a congressional race. We've had the same white congressman who is a great guy, I do want to say, for the last 40 years. So that's not if, you know, if you get what I'm saying, something that screams um, show up and show out. Because nobody is convinced things will change. But my goal and my co-founder's goal was to make sure that we were able to move the needle. Another one, and I'll let you move on to another question, but um, was Miami-Dade mayor's race and district attorney's race in which we generated probably like, I want to say, how many likes from when I post? It was like 5,000 or something like that with baller alert. 
And so we created this post essentially for a state's attorney race that was happening two years ago now. And there was a lot of scandal around the incumbent who ended up winning, but she basically faced her former subordinate, you know, as an assistant district attorney who ran, challenged her on the issues, debated her, all that. And that was something that we brought to the national stage outside of Miami. I'm not from there. And, and so things like that, that's the type of impact that we've been able to have at the local level that I think drives our ability to grow as a national brand. Wow, that is super cool that you're having that type of national impact, especially so early in the life of politicking. I mean, you mentioned kind of early on that people don't feel like voting has a direct impact on their day to day. So we're going to flip this question on its head a little bit for you. In what ways has politicking positively impacted your familial life and, you know, the things that are going on in your life? Like how has politicking and being an entrepreneur positively impacted your family life? Well, it helps us have more candid conversations about politics. If I challenge my parents on a position, they don't feel like they have to educate me on why their position is right. I mean, they should know by now that they can't convince me something is right if I don't actually like want to believe that. But it's helped us have more candid conversations. It's helped me be able to sort of explain my conversation. I was on a family vacation last week after graduation and the younger people in the group, my godbrother, a bunch of others were like basically like screw Joe Biden. And, you know, the older generation was all out of sorts, probably didn't even want to feed us. Like, you know, just like, <laughs> just sick of hearing that stuff. <laughs> and, um, but we were able to just break it down. Like, these are the issues we care about. This is what we're faced with. The group was, you know, like Boston, Chicago, Atlanta, LA. And, and I think that there was actually like a breakthrough amongst sort of that generation, the generational divide about, our political beliefs. And so that in itself has, you know, made, I think, family disagreements about politics a much more uh, manageable moment than, let's say, you know, decades ago, or even like in my family years ago, we had a conversation about politics. If you say something wrong about a person who's very adored by older folks in the family, they don't want to hear it. They, you know, they don't want to talk about it. You don't know what you're talking about. But now I think they're very much interested with the hopes of educating younger people and having those conversations. My goodness. So it's really changing your dinner table conversation. Yeah, it is. That's I excellent. told you, the young folks almost didn't eat. <laughs> <laughs> we need more of that for sure. The conversation, the communications continue to flow. Uh, you mentioned your co-founder. Mm-hmm. And this question is a more general question, although feel free to drop your co-founder and, and talk about that mm-hmm. relationship and vibe. Uh, but we like to ask folks, what is one thing, if they were creating a co-founder when they didn't already have one, what's the one thing that they would look for? You know, if they were picking from the kickball team, what's the one player, the one element, the one aspect that they would be looking for the most when they're deciding who they're going to be in this marriage relationship with in their startup? It would be someone who is like the Pharrell to my Nego or the Nego to my Pharrell, like. I've never seen videos of a Neptune's recording session where they weren't just like, they had their head down. They were like producing music. You you play piano. I play strings. I play percussion. Like everybody kind of has their role. And I I use that as an example to say the ideal co-founder is someone who is a role player, someone who's creative, someone who's always thirsty to figure out like 
a new skill set in a sense. Someone that's not distracted for sure with doing that, but somebody who's just got this appetite to become a learner. You know, it's got to be someone who's always interested in being a student because we already have mentors and teachers in this game. And I'm going to be honest with you, we're a long way from, I think, in that way, being that just because this journey is kind of continuing to play itself out. And so I would say that insatiable appetite that I mentioned, and then also someone who's got more of a memory for the things that worked than the things that failed. And that's just who I am. Like, I, I probably have people, other people probably remember my failures more than I do, because like, I'm just so eager to move on and just... I don't know, maybe even fail again. Like, let's just keep trying stuff, you know? And so people who've got a really long memory for the successes or even the journey to get there because you are going to have a lot of them. And if you take that stuff personal, especially in the entrepreneurial world or really any capacity that involves you being a leader, you you will probably have your feelings hurt. <laughs> it, it's like almost like, and I'm not just saying this, but... I don't use Tinder, but I know the, you know, function of it is you, somebody's supposed to pick you. So if you get mad because you don't get picked every day, then it's like, you should probably stop using this. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's how, uh, that's how startup life is, but that's definitely how I think partnership works in this capacity. You've got to really just be eager to move on from the things that didn't work or learn from them. That's great advice. Uh, sage wisdom indeed. Mm. Uh, politicking by definition is dependent on relationships yeah. and you know your network is your net worth is, is a common phrase uh, so who in your personal network provided value to you in the startup journey but you didn't necessarily expect that it would be them providing that level of value if you can think about or talk about those along the path or the journey who were there for you in a way that might have been under anticipated uh, I want to say my mom, I hope that if she ever hears this, that she doesn't feel like I counted her out, but I just, she's not in any way involved in entrepreneurship. She started a law firm, but I mean, like, you know, that was not her focus earlier in this venture, although she's moved in entrepreneurship even during that time. And then I wish, like, Dave Dash was somebody that I, even at the beginning of this journey, I didn't know him personally, but I saw we had a personal connection. I kind of pushed on that. Or we had a mutual connection through Gary, actually. And so, but he's just like, I don't know. I mean, he's got all these things about, that. this is why I like him. I like learning from failure. I really do. Like, I mean, I, if you're divorced, I'm not going to try to get relationship advice from you. But what I mean is when it comes to starting businesses, running businesses, like if I can hear about the things that were wildly successful, but didn't work out all the way, I feel like I might have learned more than someone who was holding like one handful of advice behind their back, one in front of them of a successful venture. Because that happens a lot. You know that, right? Like people who you know who things have just gone swimmingly for aren't even telling you the whole thing. So somebody like him doesn't do that. Not to say that he hasn't had successful ventures, to, but because he has, but he shares so much about those that weren't or didn't turn out successful in the way he thought. And so he's someone who's been just an incredible resource, candid, even when we don't ask for it, you know. And um, a third person is sort of a culmination of people, elected officials, both people who might have lost their races 
who sought higher races and lost or people who are just killing it. You know, everything they run for, they win and, you know, they can't help but raise a couple million dollars. Those people, I think that culmination of the third, like, success or failure story from the political side has helped me a lot. I'm glad that you said that. It really is a powerful thing. And they say my overnight success took 10 years, (laughs) you know. Always. That's very real. You mentioned a million dollars. Let's ask you straight up. What would you do, either personally or with politicking? (laughs) (laughs) What would you do with one million dollars? That's one with six zeros behind it. What are you doing if you get dropped a bag or a purse or a satchel full of cash to do anything you want with for politicking yourself? What would you do with that? You mentioned that it was a very relationship driven venture. So first, I'm going to have to create a traveling budget for my co-founder. And I didn't have to be a salary, doesn't have to even set us up at the Four Seasons, but Uber's that up <laughs> and, and um, as do plane tickets. But what I would also do is invest in a lot of improvement for our UI UX, invest in a lot of web improvement, but also bring some creative people on board. I know a lot of startup founders say, I want like a new college student. I would take a lady who's answered phones in a campaign for 30 years to like be our head of survey. I would take like a person who did what I was doing, like knocking on door in the projects to be like, you know, a similar person at capacity, like behavioral studies type person, because those are the people who have the institutional knowledge and money can make them comfortable enough to want to invest in the, you know, educational skill set that you may want them to have. And so that's what I would do. I would really spend some time building out personnel that's connected to community, but that also is competent and energetic enough to really carry our desires to be a people-focused platform. People-focused, love that. And I'm going to give a little bit of background on myself, by the way, because Please. you know we met back at Howard mm-hmm. uh, and back in DC. Mm-hmm. I was actually involved in campaigns a lot back mm-hmm. then. In fact, the first semester, there was an at-large city council campaign for D.C. that was right down the street from campus. What was that? Uh, this was for Jacques Patterson. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. yeah. This was for Jacques Patterson back in wow. the day. Uh, and then I subsequently worked on another campaign for David Grasso, and he did win. Right, that yeah. Particular. Like, so I think he's maybe still be in yeah. office yeah, around, yeah. The, around these times. So was very familiar with the campaign trail. Eventually, you know, worked my way up to working on the Hill, Capitol Hill in the yeah. U.S. Senate, which was awesome and very valuable experience. And you get a lot of advice in politics. There's yeah. no shortage of, you know, this is how you should do it. Avoid this and that. Although it's mostly life advice. And I would imagine that you need, in addition to that, some entrepreneurial advice. And you might have to go elsewhere for that. So maybe you could talk about now the most profitable piece of advice that you've received since you first started building politics? Find and stick to your skill set. Don't go try to searching out for new things to find or figure out that are outside of the room of what you know. Don't go trying to adopt what you've seen someone else really prove themselves to be valuable for. But really, you have to like own your value because um, I really think that, especially for a startup owner, or founder, you probably compromise the success of your venture if you don't commit to your skill set. You'll compromise your co-founders if, if it's more than one time, but then you'll also just waste your own time. What a like journey you could have if you just stick to what your skill set was and figure really out what your value was and just kill that. 
You know what I mean? I think that's the most important advice I've gotten. Someone had reminded me of that actually recently because we were talking about like a, a project at home that I was working on or in Chicago, actually. And he was just saying that he was like, you know, I'm really proud of you for sticking to your thing. Cause that's all, I guess the guy was saying that's, that's what he was hearing about, you know, what, what was my like skill set. So I would say own your skill set. Um, it's kind of like in the NBA, everybody wants to be like a three point shooter now. What a waste of time. Like you don't even have that type of skill, right? That's what the game pushes though. That's what gets on TV. I mean, that's what makes an interesting thing or in football, you know, people don't appreciate being a big man as much, but those are the people who get, you know, who are guaranteed a nice D1 scholarship, you know? And so I would say that's just a metaphor, like a sports metaphor for why it's important to really know what your value is in the game. That is spot on. And it actually reminds me again, another Howard memory, our commencement speaker was Diddy. Oh yeah, I remember that. Diddy's speech. If you, <laughs> if you haven't, I was a couple years after that. So. If you haven't heard Diddy's speech, you should definitely go look it up. It is one of my favorite yeah. commencement speeches. I think the year before, it was former President Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. The year after, it was former President, then President Obama. Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Diddy was in between there. Very, very interesting. <laughs> uh, but in his speech, he talked about coming to Howard, being there for the first 18 months or so, mm-hmm. and then dropping out to get in business and regretting the fact that he was sitting in these rooms with all of these folks who were very educated Mm -hmm. and he wasn't comprehending Mm -hmm. some of the things that they were saying as much as he felt like he could have had he finished. Uh, But nonetheless, here he was getting a PhD honorary from from Howard Howard University. And he mentioned that it was 26 years from when he left, which was important because if you all remember, recall, or have also looked up this story, he ran, I believe it was the New York City Marathon back in the day. Yes. And he raised yes. all this money for it. And he spoke about it on this speech, in this speech where he said, uh, you know, he trained, you don't really you train, I guess, like six months or the folks who run marathons will know better than I, certainly longer than he did, which is about eight or six weeks. Right. So he trained for a short period of time and he got up there and he said that he was up there in his own words. I think he said with the Kenyans or something like that. Yeah. They used a euphemism for the people who were really out there getting yeah. it. And he was up there for about 10 miles and then he just couldn't go on any, mm-hmm. anymore. And he really started to stumble. He had raised all of this money. The cameras zoom in on him and they're like, Diddy's down. He may fail. Is he going to get up? He said his feet were bleeding and all this other stuff. But he thought back to all of the people who had invested in him. Mm-hmm. And he got up and he moved as much as he could, as fast as he could, until he finished the rest of that marathon. That's right. And he said, just like it took 26 and a little bit more miles <laughs> to finish the marathon, it took 26 years for him to finish. Exactly. And I remember him, exactly. And I remember him capping off that speech by saying, don't try to be the next Obama. Don't try to be the next Oprah. Don't even try to be the next me. Be the best version of you that you can be. And he got a standing ovation for that speech. And I personally was interested because I was following him on Instagram. Mm-hmm. He was posting about him prepping for it. He took it very seriously. So definitely watch that speech. It doesn't have to be Diddy, but we are curious for you, Jordan. Well, he is the Michael Jordan of the music business, though. So that's why he has like kind of a performance level, I think, appetite to do well. High intensity. And I'm yeah. glad that in more recent years, maybe maybe much longer, but definitely emphasized more recently the idea of love. Yeah. And I think that there's an element of that that's useful in a startup as well. Mm-hmm. So it could be Diddy or somebody else, but clearly there's a connection in the art world and in entrepreneurship today. Yeah. And 
now we've just seen like uh, LeBron James has become a billionaire largely because of his ability to to transfer some of his skill sets into the business world. But for you, is there a particular artist, could be athlete or anybody else, a performer, someone in the entertainment industry who you look to, you mentioned Pharrell earlier, is there somebody that you could talk about who really inspires you and gets you in your flow? It's Jay-Z. Like, I have a big brother. He's an attorney, but it's skillful and smart as he is sometimes he like i feel like jay-z is the big brother who like is telling me like a lot of stuff that maybe my real big brother is telling me too but he's telling me like the b side of it and he has this lyric that's kind of my theory on those of us who've gone to law school but relocated closer to home or closer to a community that really needs us or have gone anywhere not just to law school to the army peace corps wherever and He's like, you know, hard knock off. We don't take over. We borrow blocks. People like, I guess if you never deal drugs or anything, like if you don't connect with the culture, you might have missed what that meant. But to me, like that's personally applicable because it's like I'm not here when I'm like in Boston or like just, you know, for a fellowship, a stamp. Like I'm not here for a long time. I'm just here to borrow the knowledge and take the. That's like, obviously, again, like th- that's a drug game lyric kind of. But like that to me is like we don't take over. We borrow blocks like you can have it back. You guys got it. But like I'm trying to carry on the knowledge to my people and people who really need me. And so he's somebody who says a lot of things that I mean, he's poetic in that sense. You know, everybody knows Jay-Z's lyrics have like three meanings, two meanings. But that was something that always stuck out to me. It was almost like Luke, was it, for, is he the 4212 or 1242? I'm going to get in trouble with the Bible study people. <laughs> but it, it talks about um, to whom much is given, much is required, 4212. And it is essentially a challenge to those of us who have identified those things that we can get out of life, who have actually accumulated them to figure out how we can give them back. And that's the same thing that I kind of apply to that lyric you know, what are we getting from the larger world that we can bring to those communities and villages that we're creating ourselves? And so Jay-Z is that person for me and a, and a bunch of other folks, but he's someone whom I'm constantly kind of like checking in to what he says. That is such a fitting draw of inspiration. And we have heard other folks speak about it. And I, you know, I like Jay-Z, although I'm from the South, so mm-hmm. there's oftentimes other people that people put up there and want to listen to yeah. more, right? Uh, at the same time, I've grown much more respect for Jay-Z as I actually learn more about his story. And I'm reading a book right now called Elements of Wit. Okay. It's an interesting little book uh, because wit has an interesting meaning today. Mm-hmm. In the past, it's really about being able to improv in the moment. And you're not always going to be the best at it, but it really is a higher level form of communication that's very satisfying for people if you can do it well, but it's very complicated to do. And they have in that book an entire chapter just on Jay-Z. Oh, wow. Okay. They speak about his flow. And I didn't realize this uh, because, again, in the South, many people are familiar with Lil Wayne or Tunchi talking about never writing down anything. Mm -hmm. He just went in the studio, read everything, and never wrote anything down again. But actually, even before that, Jay-Z was notorious for not having to write anything down, talking to himself a little bit, going into the studio, and in one take, just finishing an entire beat, just right there. And I think that that was super cool. He oftentimes wrote a lot down when he was younger to kind of get that, that competitive nature. 
And it's not surprising to me that he takes that into the boardroom with him yeah. and he's so effective at that. And I'm glad that we're able to draw that connection because as entrepreneurs, sometimes we think that we're just plugging in music just passively, yeah. but at the same time, we're actually learning some pretty good things. And in fact, in that book, it talks about 99 Problems, mm-hmm. that song, which mm-hmm. is often very controversial. But to your point, Jay-Z has you know three or four meanings mm-hmm. for everything that he writes. And in that entire song, in no example or metaphor or storyline is he actually talking about a woman, which is interesting, mm-hmm. right? So I'm glad that you answered that question in that way. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about the cities mm-hmm. that you're in and that you're going to. You mentioned that you're in Boston. Uh, you know, Boston and Cambridge has a very unique sort of startup culture yeah, system. Yeah, it, it does. So talk to us about what that's like for folks who may not be familiar. I mean, we have folks who are in the South and D.C. and New York, mm-hmm. even places that are close by like that don't compare to exactly kind of Boston's kind of nature a little bit. So talk to us as an insider about Boston. Well, see, in Boston, like people don't have anything to lose passing on knowledge to you. Like what would an MIT professor have, you know, to lose by like putting me onto some game or like what would a biotech founder in Cambridge have, or, you know, even some of my law professors, like I have a corporations professor, he used to teach corporations when I took it who was like quoted in this article. It was circulating about inflation. It was on the news recently. And so it there's just like this academic ecosystem, academic and business and startup ecosystem that just passes on a lot of knowledge and that's been useful. And then I think that there's also on, in the same regard, again, nothing that I've felt from like people I'm learning from, like teachers, but of competitiveness, you know, that it's like, if you're like a law professor or like a um, business professor at this school, you want to get the higher, you know, endowed professorship at another school, you want to get a center head. So in that same way, still there's a lot to gain if, you, if you're not their peer, you know, because that's the person who themselves is on the up and up and they just want to sort of bring you with them in that same capacity. But honestly, I that was not even my goal, like moving to Cambridge. I just, I met like a woman who was at that time when I worked at the IOP, my boss, she was great. She was saying hilarious stuff, but she was on the same page with me. And then she had said that there had never been anybody there from an HBCU. I'm like, that doesn't even make any sense. You know what I mean? As much of a space as Howard takes up in politics. And so all that to say, that wasn't my goal to sort of become a part of that, but that's probably been the biggest benefit for me there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, in somewhere like New York, you may think like it's a lot of money to be made out here. But in Cambridge, with all of the things that you mentioned and I brought up, there's just a lot of things to know. And you can get them from different corners. You can get them from different capacities, but it's lasting knowledge. And so that's something that I really appreciate about being there. How does the money flow in Boston and Cambridge compare to some of the other markets where people <laughs> might be approaching investors? <laughs> Well, first, I think that the market in Boston is very focused on biotech in a lot of ways. It's very focused on more technical aspects of tech, whereas in D.C., a lot of money is to be made on something like politics. And for all access purposes, that's where we're headquartered. In Chicago, there's a lot of space for more like financial focused startups because Chicago itself likes to think of it likes to think of itself as somewhat of an alternative to Wall Street, right? And so I think in that way, cities are more open 
to diversifying their tech ecosystems, whereas I don't really see that from Cambridge. For one, a lot of startups have an origin story from universities, so you're limited in that way. And then another is that, I mean, the money that's there knows what they want to invest in. And so many people are moving in and out of Chicago, New York, D.C., even L.A., and some places throughout the South that uh, would allow someone in our position to have just a much more open-minded conversation with a potential investor than you would ever have in Cambridge. And that's just the truth. Cambridge knows that they don't have much of a like political tech ecosystem outside of law or undergraduate or graduate students that are there. And um, they also know that when it comes to some of the more like equity focused fields, there's just not a ton of space. I'm not saying that's always going to be the case, but um, I think in a lot of ways outside of biotech, Cambridge is trying to be too much of a like, whereas Chicago kind of like postures itself as like a second New York or like an alternative New York, Boston and Cambridge try to be for a lot of markets. And it just, I don't know, it, it just fails. You know, they might be physically too close or they might be trying a little bit too hard to stand as a second behind New York. So it is very interesting. Mm -hmm. It is. So you are actually not the first law student to come on the podcast. And mm -hmm. I would imagine there are plenty I saw of, that. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine there are plenty of people listening to this podcast right now who may be in your position or uh, a few years ago when you were uh, both in law school and also a co-founder of mm -hmm. a, a fast growing startup that's gaining traction fast. So we don't doubt your diligence in being able to balance both and give your all to both. But do you have any advice for somebody who's similarly situated who might be sitting in your shoes two years ago where they're starting off in a very competitive or a very time intensive uh, professional program or even as undergrad and also trying to make sure that they're carrying their water for their startup if they have co-founders? Start with at least if you can't with if you can't start with a really impressive MVP, which is minimal viable product, minimum viable product, then start with at least a good pitch deck. Start with one of the two, then start calling everybody. Even if it's annoying, because the thing is, if, especially if you start calling people in the same group, they'll start talking about you. Then somebody's going to email you or somebody's going to oblige to your invitation to have coffee or lunch or drinks, you know, in Cambridge and DC, even Chicago people will, when it's time to talk to you, they want to have a drink. So, you know, they'll spend some time with you. And um, especially those of you who are in a good position, like Abraham and I have been to just have had good academic networks and even professional ones, you know, they'll, they'll spend some time with you. And so I would say just don't give up on contacting people and don't be discouraged by the people who don't respond because eventually they'll start chiming in when their colleagues have. But I would say make yourself available to those folks. But then also keep, if you have a second thing or if you have like a day thing, it might be a day job, it might be like a day skill, whatever the case is, sharpen that as much as possible because obviously that's what differentiate, differentiates you. So, you know, I guess for that, that would be being lawyers. But, you know, make sure that your passion is always easily associated with what, what you're doing because then if not, you know, it would be kind of challenging for you to make lasting connections because what you're doing looks like a hustle versus, you know, your genuine passion. And so make sure that you're always able to talk about what you're doing is what you really love 
or at least what you like doing better than a day job. Uh, but I would say always, always work the network and then always stay extremely clear on, you know, how this is tied into the larger goal of what you want to do with your life. I love that. We have a couple of questions left, but how is that freshly doing? How are you, how are you liking it? As you, It's as you- good. Clearly. I mean, I'm, I'm almost finished <laughs> with it. Yeah, I don't know if that's a real question. It's very good. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad that it's tasty for you. Mm -hmm. So this next question is also somewhat of a philosophical one, or at least it can be, Mm -hmm. but it's really going to speak to sort of where you expect to go, not just with politicking, but with you as an entrepreneur, as an operator, maybe even as an investor. Do you want to run a billion dollar company? I would love to. Different from starting one or owning it. Do you want to be in that driver's seat or in that C-suite of a billion dollar company? Why or why not? Well, I guess my philosophical response is I can end up running a billion dollar city, right? New York is a billion dollar company. LA, Houston is, Miami. And so like, yeah, absolutely. And those aren't cities that I started. Those aren't businesses that I started, you know, when it comes to a lot of the other businesses we think about, Twitter, Facebook, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it would be cool too, but all of those, you know, in a way, and I think probably we're seeing this with Twitter, those companies didn't have as solid of a foundational aim as we thought that they did. And so as long as there's a company that does, which I don't think for billion dollar private corporations, there are many, I'd be interested in it. Very honest. And thank you for keeping me honest about how expansive yeah. that could that could apply because you're right, cities. In many ways, uh, our billion-dollar organizations. Those are the uh, only ones that always have revenue also. That, so. that, that, that is true. They have a bit of an advantage yeah. there, <laughs> uh, must admit. Uh, so this last question is really, I mean, you might have said this in other ways throughout this conversation, which has been a great one. It's always uh, a bit questionable how a politic or a political interview is going to go mm-hmm. with folks who have varying degrees of politics. Mm-hmm. But I think it speaks to your underlying mission. For politicking, which is it's not necessarily about your view. It's about being informed. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. Uh, but in your own words, in what ways do you think you like what's the most valuable thing that you do for your customers that they're not going to get elsewhere? Well, I'm speaking the language and that's not this type of sort of pandering that TikTok or, you know, some of the other I, I won't try to name or call them out, but some of the other political focus apps, platforms, or even campaigns are, I'm speaking the language of a person who's frustrated, of a person who, you know, I would be willing to say no matter how high I got in the field, would always understand that it starts with just needing to know that people actually care about disenfranchised people. It doesn't even have to be you. It's just that like, you know, if people at least care about the community that I come from, that's like step one. But I think there are so many of these like competitors that we have that are not operating from that place at all. And, and maybe it's not their fault, but I know that better than any of them doing. And that's something that will forever be deeply ingrained into politicking. Well said. And this really has been a thought provoking interview. I am convicted to get more involved Thank in these you, yeah. <laughs> local races uh, and even just pay attention more when folks in other cities, like when you go to another city to talk to people about, hey, what's going on in this city? Just like I asked you. I was yeah. like, who's Miss Lady? Yeah. Like, she looks yeah. like she's ready. Absolutely. <laughs>
Thank you for reminding me of that embarrassment, but no longer <laughs> in the future because we have the tools. It's available. Speaking of being available, what is a way where if I've been listening to this and I really vibe with what you're saying, like I'm, I'm listening to Jordan, I'm like, wow, like I don't want to be that person who doesn't value enfranchisement. I want to be informed. I don't just want to, you know, go to the polls and, and click a box or check a, whatever they're doing these days. I actually want to be able to be a force in my community, what's a way somebody can get in touch with you and get a response within 24 hours to get a response today? Yeah, DM politicking. If it's not me, it's like someone who works with our social media. So DM politicking. But I check it a lot, to be honest. Because we get some crazy messages sometimes from people. I don't even know where that started happening. But yeah. So, I mean, sometimes I'm just amused. But like, DM us. It's just at politicking, P-O-L-I-T-I-C-K-I-N-G on Instagram. You can also DM us on Twitter, which is politicking the app. And the same on Facebook, though I don't check that as much. Everybody who's got aunties, uncles, and parents on there understands why. But just reach out to me and say like, you know, Jordan or, you know, communicate with us because both my co-founder, Winkuni, shout out to her, are extremely communicative on those platforms. And um, we're always just wanting to know. And then you can always email us, but I I would prefer that people reach out to those social media platforms. Um, But if for whatever reason they don't have them or they just wish not to, you could always reach out to info at politicking app and app is app.com. Very cool. Have thoroughly appreciated this conversation. I'm glad you like the Bev from Freshly. Clearly. (laughs) They eliminate you well. That's good to know. But more than anything, we're happy that now in these, you know, sort of interesting times that there are resources and technologies being leveraged in a way where we can use it for good. So we appreciate you coming on and exposing our audience to what you and your co-founder Cooney are offering. And with that, we will leave you the last word. Thank you for having me. I want to encourage everyone to continue logging in. And um, most of all, I just want to encourage everybody to stay positive. You know, the last thing we need now is any more negativity. And so it's stay positive as much as you can. If there's an elect official that you see on TV that you don't like, find one that you do because someone's running against them. And, um, you know, really just try to get the most. It might not be the best, but try to get the most out of what we have when it comes to these upcoming elections statewide. And then also some of the larger ones in the fall. But stay positive, please. Well said. And with that, we'll bid you adieu. We'll see you all in a couple weeks. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever medium of choice that you have. But thank you for joining, and we'll see you next week.